Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. Man is the only animal that blushes, or needs to. Mark Twain. Conscience, what is it? Theologian Stephen D. Smith defines it as an inner capacity for judging some actions to be right and others wrong. And it seems to be virtually coextensive with and essential to humanity. Conscience bestows on human beings dignity. It is encountered where human beings are present. The moral duty to adhere to conscience is broadly embraced. There's a practical tautology. A person should do what he believes to be right seems to be saying the same thing as a person should do what he believes he should do. Given human fallibility. But we are delving beyond the concept of conscience to the more specific subject of freedom of conscience. Welcome to episode five Understanding the Historical Roots of Freedom of Conscience. I'm your host, Paul F.J. Ranyas, and before we get started, I'd like to recognize an excellent book that I recommend as an introductory text on religion and human rights. It's entitled Religion and Human Rights and Introduction, edited by John Witt Jr. and M. Christian Green. From time to time, I'll be referring to this text during the course of episodes relating to this subject area. Now let's get started. Medieval experts, authorities, for instance, Thomas Aquinas, and the canon law instructed people to follow one's conscience even if its command contradicted church teachings. However, these authorities did not endorse freedom of conscience. In other words, you should do what your conscience instructs you to do, but that does not translate into the powers that be, the government or authorities, or anyone else being under any obligation to grant any special respect to your perhaps erroneous or ill-judged conscience. Freedom of conscience seems to be a more modern occurrence. There have been three phases in the life of freedom of conscience. In this episode, we are discussing the first, the historical roots the connection between freedom of conscience and religious toleration. The other two phases are the problem of free exercise exemptions and issues of freedom of conscience related to the partial intersection, seen by some as problematic, of conscience and autonomy in an era of secular equality. Those two sections will be discussed in our next episode and will bring us into contemporary times, current-day issues. But we must first understand the history and roots of the concept. 
So we turn to the first phase, freedom of conscience as religious toleration. English Catholic Thomas More refused to swear acceptance of Henry VIII's divorce and takeover of the English church. I leave every man to his own conscience, he said, and methinketh in good faith that so were it good reason that every man should leave me to mine. Also in the 16th century, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, in his stance against the church and empire, stated, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. These two mutually denunciatory sources are sometimes declared to be the origins of the concept of freedom of conscience. The concept of freedom of conscience had also been endorsed by sources beyond the West. In ancient times, 3rd century BC, King Ashoka on the Indian subcontinent is said to have endorsed freedom of conscience. The Quran has two important verses in regard to religious toleration and conversion. The first, let there be no compulsion in religion. The second, to everyone have we given a law and a way, and if God had pleased, he would have made all humankind one people, people of one religion, but he hath done otherwise that he might try you in that which he hath severally given unto you. Wherefore, press forward in good works, until God ye return, and he will tell you that concerning which ye disagree. Based on these verses, Muhammad added into his charter for Medina the principle of religious toleration. Muslims regard that document as the first charter of freedom of conscience in human history. Nevertheless, it is sometimes believed that the mutually denunciatory sources of Martin Luther and Thomas More are the origins of freedom of conscience. But neither of these two men were full-fledged supporters, expounders of the concept of freedom of conscience. However, the next century, the 17th century, would see writers develop what Thomas More and Martin Luther ignited. Roger Williams, Baruch Spinoza, Pierre Bale, John Locke, William Penn, and other less-remembered individuals would develop the concept. During this period, its first stage, freedom of conscience was virtually equivalent with religious toleration. In current times, this notion of religious toleration gives off an air of almost being platitudinous. But in the 17th century, it was indeed a radical concept. The dominant belief assumed from medieval Christendom was that religious unity was indispensable to political community. And government had the obligation to extinguish heresy and to look after, preserve, and tend to the one true faith. These prevailing assumptions remain subsequent to the unraveling of Christendom after the Protestant Reformation. Violence, both official and unofficial, internal and external, 
or one would say domestic or international, occurred among Christians of different theological beliefs. This can be seen with the wars of religion in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Another example is the execution of Michael Servetus in Calvinist Geneva. He was executed for his anti-Trinitarian views. The prevailing structure was the confessional state. And this structure, this model was ratified in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia, the treaty that ended the Thirty Years' War. And this was signed in two places, Munster and Osnabrück. You can visit the Hall of Peace where the treaty was signed in Munster a couple of years ago. I, I made a visit there, and I recommend it. It is, it is truly interesting. The treaty ratified the model of the confessional state under the principle coius regio, ios religio. Translated from Latin, each prince would determine the religion of his own realm. Advocates of tolerance, freedom of conscience, opposed this agenda of imposed uniformity. They developed arguments to resist this enforced homogeneity. Proponents of tolerance developed three rationales for freedom of conscience. One, the incompetence rationale. Two, the voluntariness futility rationale. Three, the dual jurisdiction rationale. The first, the incompetence rationale said secular rulers do not possess the competence to adjudicate between truth and fallacy in religious affairs, and, and they should not enforce religious orthodoxy. English philosopher John Locke wrote, The one only narrow way which leads to heaven is not better known to the magistrate than to the private person and therefore I cannot safely take him for my guide, who may probably be as ignorant of the way as myself, and who is certainly less concerned for my salvation than I am. The second rationale developed was the voluntariness futility rationale. God is only pleased by religion that is sincere and freely chosen faith. This is the only kind of religion that leads to salvation. Therefore, enforced religious conformity is futile. John Locke said, True and saving religion consists in the inward persuasion of the mind without which nothing can be acceptable to God. And such is the nature of understanding that it cannot be compelled to the belief of anything by outward force. That's the second rationale. God is only pleased by religion that is sincere and freely chosen. The third rationale is the dual jurisdiction rationale. Can you guess what this entails? If you said Jesus' teaching of render unto Caesar the things that be Caesar and unto God the things that be God's, you would be correct. This rationale stated that God's universe is split into spiritual and temporal realms. The spiritual and the temporal are each governed by 
designated authorities to whom correct respect should be given. During the Middle Ages, the church labored to free God's domain from Caesar's. This resulted in the papal campaign for freedom of the church, Libertas Ecclesiae. Later, in Protestant realms, a part of the spiritual authority formerly put in the hands of the church came to be designated to the individual conscience. The medieval reasoning that government lacked jurisdiction over church affairs developed into the idea that government had no jurisdiction over the conscience. These three rationales were embraced by advocates of religious toleration and later religious equality. Religious differences could not be removed through argumentation or stomped down through suppression. The rationales for tolerance prevailed. People understood that they had to find ways to live in peace together. Earlier decrees had been sorely incomplete. Henry IV issued the Edict of Nantes in 1598. It was revoked in 1685. It limited toleration to Protestants, but made them submit to appreciable legal and political restrictions. The edict did not apply to Jews or Muslims. The English Parliament's 1689 Act of Toleration gave liberty of worship to some dissenting Protestants, but Jews, Quakers, Catholics, or Unitarians were not covered by the Act. The dissenting Protestants that were covered under the Act were still discriminated against politically and given the status of outsider. Their worship was done in private homes. In 18th century United States, most state constitutions unambiguously affirmed freedom of religion and conscience. But for leaders like James Madison, that wasn't enough. He argued that beyond toleration, there must be religious equality. Virginia was the forerunner with the 1786 enactment of Thomas Jefferson's well-known act of establishing religious freedom. Five years later, the First Amendment prohibited establishing religion at the national level. Connecticut and Massachusetts acquiesced by the 1830s, the last states to do so. While some European states retained their established churches, by the mid-20th century, the fundamental commitment to religious toleration was enshrined in documents such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Before its collapse, the USSR officially recognized the right to freedom of conscience, stating, Each citizen independently decides his own attitude towards religion and enjoys the right of confessing either alone or jointly with others, or not to confess any religion, and to express and spread convictions. The historical roots of freedom of conscience are connected to religious toleration. In our next episode, we are going to bring the discussion into contemporary times and discuss the problem of free exercise exemptions, as well as issues relating to the partial convergence of conscience and autonomy in an age of secular equality. I'll leave you with a movie recommendation, a classic movie related to today's episode. A Man for All Seasons, a 1966 British historical drama 
the story of Sir Thomas More and his stance against Henry VIII. Until our next episode, keep the faith. You've been listening to Ion Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics.